0: It's 2020, and it's safe to say, if it's controversial, it's on the internet, whether it started there or not. In fact, I think these days it's more than likely that it started on the internet and perhaps a small community that then went viral. What's that got to do with Developmentor? Our guest today is Dr. Shiri Dori Hakon, and she is the CEO and co-founder of Ocode, a company dedicated to detecting controversies online. While that's what she's doing now, she's had a career that has spanned working as a software engineer, a university researcher, and a consultant. Along the way, she's earned a PhD in computer science and worked for the likes of Facebook and Google, as well as The Motley Fool and Answers.com. As if she's not already busy enough, she's a regular public speaker, having spoken at events like the Grace Hopper Conference, and she just so happens to be the co-founder of the Women in Information Retrieval Mentoring Group, which is focused on female-identified researchers in search.
1: You're listening to the Development Tour Podcast, hosted by Grant Ingersoll. We have one goal on the show, to help you build a successful career in tech, no matter where you're from or where you're going. We do this by showcasing interesting people working across a variety of roles in tech and deep dive into their why. If you want to learn more, please visit our website at developmentor.com or follow us on Twitter at developmentor.
0: Welcome to the show, Shiri.
2: Hey, Grant. It's great to be here, and thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, thanks so much for joining me, especially, you know, there's a lot of craziness in the world at the moment with COVID-19 happening all around us. So I really appreciate you taking the time out of your day to speak with me.
2: Yeah, it's a pleasure.
0: Well, and so why don't we just start off, uh, you know, I know we actually have some shared geography in our past year and that you went to UMass Amherst and I was up at Amherst College all in the same town. Would love it if you just start off with you giving yourself an introduction to our audience.
2: Sure, so like you said, I have a PhD in computer science and these days I sometimes even introduce myself as Dr. Controversy, but my background has been in computer science as well as uh, during my undergrad doing what in the States would be called the sort of liberal arts education. Uh, So I had the good fortune of taking classes in philosophy, geography, whatever I wanted in my second major during my undergraduate. Went to do a master's. Both uh, of them were at University of Haifa. And then I went to work in the industry for a few years before going back for the PhD at UMass. And in between, I also did a little stint in San Diego, which was a lot of fun. During the end of the PhD, I actually co-founded Ocode, and um, more recently, i have started also doing some consulting on the side, which has been super fun.
0: That's awesome, and and now, uh, like I think in my LinkedIn stalking, if I understand your profile correctly, I believe you said you actually graduated high school early and in the U.S. and then went to Haifa, right? I'm kind of curious what inspired that route, because uh, that's that's certainly not the typical high school student experience for sure.
2: I was actually born in Israel, and then I was raised back and forth uh, between Israel and the States, and part of that is sort of a natural consequence of having academic parents. So uh, when they did their postdocs, I was living in, you know, middle of nowhere, Kansas, and when they came back for their sabbatical, I ended up in my sophomore year of high school in uh, Newton, Massachusetts. And so there was a bit of a conundrum here because my parents were going to go back to Israel two years later. And what I would have done if I had just taken the traditional route would have placed me in senior year of high school in Israel. And uh, the way the Israeli high school system works is a matriculation system. And so I would have had to do four years worth of tests in one year. Admittedly, not the most appealing choice for an 18 year old. And so I decided that it was better to do three years worth of school in two than to do four years worth in one, you know, managed to convince my my high school uh, administration that they should let me do that. That's how I did the early graduation piece. I did seriously consider staying in the States right up until I saw the tuition bill. You know, that was still several years, you know, over 10 years ago and, sorry, 20 years ago at this point, tuition was still sane compared to what it is now. But nonetheless, I could go to uh, Israel and get my entire undergraduate for the cost of one year at like a public school in the States. And so at that point, it was a no brainer. And that was even before merit based scholarships, which I also received. So um, no student loans and degree in, in engineering in three years.
0: I think that's what's called winning. Well, so then I'm curious, so like where did the love of computer science and tech emerge? Was that like you got to college and you're like, oh, hey, I'm gonna get into computer science or was it a much younger age?
2: Yeah, computers in general, much much younger age. Uh, I was actually on my parents, you know, Apple II Macintosh in at like the age of four, and uh, I figured out how to like change the background. And my parents were like, "What did you do to our computer?" They especially hated it when I would move files into the trash. But you know, the Macintosh trash had that really cool like visual effect where it did get, get full, and then you emptied it and got empty. And you know, I, I didn't earn a lot of brown with my parents doing that. I got a chance to learn basic, at, you know, when I was about eight or nine, I think, and then later got a chance to program with Go as a kid. Uh, but you know, it's funny because a lot of people when they talk about their career in tech, they say, Oh, I wrote my first program at the age of 10. And for years, I didn't think of myself as that person right i i came to college i wanted to do philosophy and my mom was like no 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 you got to do something practical and so she said you can do economics or computer science those are your options and i was like hey i like computers so sure why not i had no idea what computer science actually meant and so i perceived myself as being a newbie and it, it, it wasn't until much, much later when I heard people saying, oh, like I always knew I was going to be a tech person. And usually you hear that from guys. And then I looked at my history and I said, well, actually, I knew how to program at the age of 10 too. I wrote like little music things and go. And so, hey, maybe I have that same background. But it's, it's so interesting that women often don't see themselves in that picture, even when they do have that background, that's not sort of the perception.
0: I'm curious, like, like, how has that evolved for you? As I think I mentioned in the lead-in, you know, you've you've started this group, Women in Information Retrieval. I mean, I I know this is something you're pretty passionate about. Like, talk through some of the efforts you've made and, and the work you're doing in that space.
2: Thanks. Yeah, I appreciate you mentioning that because I am actually super passionate about diversity and inclusion in the tech space. I think it's an area that's sorely lacking and I find that to be actually one of my driving reasons for staying and and enjoying this career is to shift ratios in tech for underrepresented groups and to empower other women and be empowered by them. I, I found that, sadly, tech is often a very traditionally white male field and all that that entails. And that, you know, wasn't always the case. So if you go back to the like 70s and 80s, And and even before that, I mean, some of the very earliest programmers were women. It's only when it became a sort of a high status position that it became more male dominated. And there's all sorts of reasons for that. There's a wonderful book called Brotopia, which is really eye opening for those of us, even for those of us who've been in that space for a long time. And so for me personally, both as a woman and as a person with disabilities, I find that It's super important to encourage other folks uh, who are not maybe the prototypical nerd programmer to get involved in tech, stay involved in tech. And I think a huge part of it is retention. It's not just hiring. A lot of people talk about, you know, oh, there's not enough pipeline, but it's actually a leaky pipeline. So there's people leaving tech. And so to me, a huge part of what gets me excited is to make sure that, not only that people come in the door, but they don't want to leave.
0: You know, it's interesting, the history that you called out there, because that was always my perception as well, is that, you know, I I think in early days of tech, it was such an outlier career that it attracted kind of all the people that fit into this, what was considered an outlier, right? Because like you said, there was no status attached to working in computers. So people were who just kind of naturally you know, let's face it, I think we're we're both nerds, we can say it. The nerds went to this field and then as the money flowed in and, and kind of the status came in, then it got brought up uh, and ruined it for everybody else. So
2: yeah, and I think it's, it's interesting because I, you know, I once heard a talk by a professor in Georgia Tech, and she put up a picture of her days at IBM. And she said, like, do you notice anything strange about that picture? And it was from 1984. And I noticed it right away. It was uncanny. Half of the people on the team were women. You know, I think that at the time, there's a lot of reasons, and the author of Brotopia goes actually into a lot of details that I wasn't aware about how that came to be. And it's very sad to me because there's nothing that inherently makes men be better at computing, but that's the perception that we have today. And it's just very misguided. and, And it's a shame because... We've got folks who could benefit from having such a super creative, very interesting, challenging and well-compensating career and that they just either never join or they're driven away by, you know, some of the things we've seen out of Uber, unfortunately, and other companies the toxic culture. And it's just it's just really something that I find to be one of the greatest tragedies of our time, in a sense
0: there is some sad reality there as well. I think you that's spot on and I, there's not much I can add other than I, I think you hit the nail on the head. I want to kind of come back to you and your doctorate. You know, I, I've had on a couple of different people who have kind of like done what I like to say is gotten all the degrees. Right. And, you know, so first off, just getting your PhD, that's a huge commitment. And then I think I noticed also, and you mentioned in your intro, you started in San Diego on that path and then ended up in UMass. And I'm pretty sure you didn't move from San Diego to UMass for the weather. Tell me more about like that time as a PhD student, like, first off, what inspired you to to go all that way? And then what was it like, you know, working like I know you did some internships then you're you're trying to find a topic like walk me through those years as a Ph.D. student.
2: I think sometimes it's tempting to think that these decisions are sort of this monolithic like, oh, I knew all my life that I wanted a Ph.D. For me, I really didn't. And not only that, I was actually actively for some part of my career actively trying to stay away from academia. Because I come from an academic family, you know, part of me was like, oh, I don't want to be like my parents. And there was some resistance there. But there was also just the sense that, you know, academia is this like ivory tower and I wanted to have a real impact. And so after I did my master's, you know, my advisor really liked me and hi fi he said, why don't you stay? And I liked him a lot. But I said, no, no, I really want to go out and see what the real world is like. I found that I liked industry quite a bit. One of the reasons that I actually went back to academia was not because of some deep inspiration to this cutting edge research. It was actually because at some point during my work in the industry, I actually got really, really sick. And, you know, without going into specifics, at some point, starting in like 2006 and going all the way through sort of mid 2011 ish, some of the biggest goals that I was aspiring to was get out of bed, brush my teeth, you know, maybe write three lines of code a day. And that was really not a very good place to be in. And I mention this because I think, you know, a lot of people struggle with whether it's physical health or mental health issues. And sometimes when you're there, it really, really sucks. And you don't know what you want to do. You don't care about some lofty goal and part of the reason why I went back to academia was because I knew that it was familiar to me. It was something I could do, in a sense, more easily. And also, it was an easier ticket to come back into the state. So at the time, my husband had just graduated from his PhD, wanted to do a postdoc. I could have gone and, and done the job hunt, but in the situation that I was in, prepping for a job interview was like this insurmountable mountain that I couldn't even conceive of of climbing. You know, doing the GRE, I was always very good at taking tests and and writing some essays, was something that was a lot easier and achievable at the time. I loved San Diego. Like you said, I mean, we were in La Jolla. The weather was amazing. We lived by the beach. It was great. But here's where life really intervenes. I mean, my husband finished his postdoc and got a job offer. And the two-body problem, what the academics refer to he's in the social sciences. It was a total no-brainer. Like, hey, an assistant professor, tenure track position at an R1 institution, of course we're going to go. And so I just took one for the team, so to speak. And, you know, it ended up being an amazing decision and I don't regret it in the least. But at the time, it was very clearly, you know, taking a hit into the research that I had done in San Diego and switching fields because there was nobody at UMass doing the same kind of research. Ended up being great, and I loved my advisor, who you actually know, Professor James Allen, is incredible, um, loved UMass, uh, despite the weather, but, you know, at the time, it was a really, really challenging shift for me, and, you know, it was something that I'm very fortunate to have an extremely supportive spouse, and, uh, you know, we talked it over, and yet it was very, very clear for us as a family that that was the right choice.
0: I didn't realize in there, too, that you had switched fields, you know, if I'm understanding correctly. So basically dealing with some pretty difficult health issues and then kind of coming out of that, moving back to the States or being in the States while that's happening, and then moving from San Diego to UMass and switching fields. I'm curious, though, what field were you in at San Diego
2: Yeah, well, you know, it's funny because the first year I was actually signed up for bioinformatics. You know, I didn't get along super well with my advisor, which in hindsight had a lot to do with my health issues, which I wasn't disclosing. In hindsight, all I, I understand now is probably a pretty big mistake. But, you know, my advisor had no conception of how hard it was for me to even... Get out of bed, let alone like doing research, and so I ended up switching to ubiquitous computing with another professor, which I was very much more excited about, and and was a lot more fun. And by that point, my health was already starting to improve, so I, I was able to get some more work done. I was really excited about Ubicomp. Uh, you know, we got to play with all the cool gadgets. Smartphones were just getting, you know, really taking off. And so my very first smartphone, I owned it as part of a research effort. Um, We were doing some really cool stuff with sensors and with uh, devices like uh, the Fitbit, which was, again, like this really high-tech, gadgety, cool thing that nobody had heard about. And then also other devices that nobody has heard about to this day because they never took off like the Fitbit did. This is very much like the, the geek's paradise to get to play with all these cool toys and then study how they affected people's lives. But when I got to UMass, the professor that had been in that field was went on sabbatical. And so I mentioned that because, you know, life twists and turns was a phrase that one of my friends had had given me a gift when we just got started. It's you never know how things end up. And I ended up working with James who was in information retrieval, a field which I was very interested in back when I was working at Answers.com several years prior. And so, you know, it goes around, kind of comes around. Originally, I was really bummed. Later, it turned out to be super exciting. And now I have this expertise in information retrieval and machine learning. It's a wonderful place to be in these
0: days. Like living in the South, like this is like a country song, right? I mean, it's what's that song, Bless the Broken Road? I mean, in some ways, it's come full circle for you. Cause I, like, as I mentioned, Answers.com for the folks who aren't familiar was a, you know, mid 2000s question answering system built on top of search technology and based out of israel which hence the tie-in for your time and
2: and it was a super cutting-edge startup in what they were doing it was very cool and so you know that was really amazing to come back full circle and also had some like weird tie-ins to my masters which was in string matching so it was more of the the algorithmic side of of information retrieval but things like pattern matching and automatons stuff like that so it was an interesting play and I think you mentioned at some point you know you don't always have to use that degree and sometimes things end up surprising you later.
0: Well, I'm going to really blow your mind, Sherry, because I did some consulting work for Answers way back when as well, because so, they were a Lucene and Solar shop. It is such a small role, especially at Search. It's like you feel like it's such a big field and yet it's so small. Well, and so did you just happen to meet James while you're at UMass? Or like, how did you find search?
2: Right, right, right. So it's funny, because a colleague of mine, who you may also know, Yoel Marek, when I first left Israel to go to the state, she said, Oh, you got to do search. And UMass was one of the schools I was considering before going to UCSD. And she said, Oh, you got to work with James. He's great. And I completely forgot about that because, you know, I went to San Diego. When I got to UMass and this professor had had gone on sabbatical, and I was like, well, what now? I had a guaranteed funding for a year, but I needed an advisor. And so I started knocking on doors, and I didn't know what I wanted to do. In a way, it ended up being a really great opportunity because I got to shop around. You know, I went to different teams' meetings and labs. I knocked on James' door as one of the many people that I spoke with, And uh, he said, well, what are you looking for? Are you looking for a project or a funding? And I said, "Uh, can I have both? And luckily for me, he said, well, yeah, I have this, you know, funny little project on controversy detector, and it'd probably only be a semester, but, you know, could be fun, and then afterwards, we'll see. My running gag throughout the PhD was, like, not only did we not solve it in one semester, it turned out to be material for, like, three or four different PhDs, and... By the time I was graduating, that turned to be all too present because there was a second PhD student, my colleague Youngha jang as well as a third PhD student now working with James, all doing their research on controversy.
0: Uh, and I want to get into the controversy in a in a minute there, Doctor Controversy. But I want to just pause and ask you to reflect a little bit on you know that. "Quote unquote broken road." Now that it's, I'm implying it's broken, but like I'm curious as to how you think about these inflection points. Now that you've got a little bit of time between you and them, and and how it's shaped your career, set going forward.
2: When I was younger, I would see those points as like a really, really horrible thing. And this sort of stuckness was always really frustrating to me, whether it was through circumstances outside of my control or due to decisions, you know, that I made in in conjunction with my partner, or sometimes, you know, things just happen, right? Like you said, the broken road. I love that metaphor because life, it's not always what you plan and what you hope. And sometimes it is and, and you get there and you're like, Oh, this isn't what I thought. I think these days I recognize that this kind of thing will happen. For me, it's usually somewhere between like two to five years at the most where I find myself going like, hey, what am I doing here? Either because like, I don't like where I ended up or I love it, but I'm ready for something new. Mm -hmm. And so I used to get really upset and frustrated and, and sort of fighting almost like these moments Because sometimes they can be rather protracted, right? They can be weeks or months where you're like, I don't know. I don't like this. What's going on? Where am I at? Like, where's this all leading? And now I've sort of learned to embrace that uncertainty to some extent. I mean, it's never fun exactly. But at least now I can sort of recognize it and I say, oh, this is what the stuckness feels like. It's almost like a mindfulness thing to say, oh, I recognize this is a pattern that I've been through before. And I know it's going to work out eventually. You know, I don't know where this is going right at this minute. But, you know, a year from now, I'll look back and be like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Like, this is where it should have ended up. Or not, you know. One thing that really, really helped me come to that point where I can embrace it is I'm a huge, like, bookworm, so I'm going to quote a bunch of books. I I warn you already. But there's a book called Feel the Fear and Do It Anyway. And it's like this classic 80s self-help book which I only read, you know, earlier this fall, I think. And one thing she talks about is that, you know, we often think about decisions as these like binary, horribly difficult things. And no matter what happens, you can always have regret that we didn't make the other choice. And so she flips it on its head. She says... Why don't you think about it as a win-win? Because if you pick A and you don't like it, well, then you learned that you don't like A. And if you pick B and it screwed up, then you learned something along the way and you probably met some cool people regardless of what you decided. And you're know what, you probably not going to end up homeless on the street, so it's all good. So that was really helpful for me as somebody who struggled with decision-making and angst for ages.
0: I can definitely relate to that as well. And I say this a lot, you know, binary thinking is for logic expressions, not people and and life, right? You know, there's almost always a third choice too. Uh, That's the other thing I would add into that, right? I think you can often do A and B, but maybe not all of A and all of B. Let's get controversial here. I'm sure you hear lots of puns and jokes here. So I'll I'll take my liberties. As uh, my son would say, it's a dad joke. But I think, you know, we kind of all no controversy when we see it at some level but I'm, I'm curious you know you're taking a bent on this of I'm going to apply machines to this that means I have to teach them what controversy is which means I need to Define it in a much more methodical way. What a kind of a couple part question here. But the first one is define the space for us a little bit, just so our listeners understand what you mean by controversy. And then, how do you form a company around that and, and tell kind of the founding story around Ocode so that we can kind of bring together these couple of pieces?
2: Absolutely. And, you know, how I define controversy was sort of the million-dollar question because my PhD committee wouldn't let me graduate until I answered that question. I ended up writing sort of a mathematical, a whole paper on a mathematical definition of controversy. Like you said, it's, it's a little bit like that old quip about pornography. I'll know it when I see it. But that's easy for a human. Nonetheless, a human can't scale to read all of Twitter. When we wanted to use machine learning to figure that out, That allows you to scale to much, much larger data sets. However, it's not so easy to explain to a computer what that means. And so part is just learn by example, right? Train the model in machine learning by showing it a bunch of controversial subjects. And that's certainly been part of the work. But one other thing that we were able to discover is that controversy is based on at least two different dimensions, one of which is contention, sort of how many people disagree And the other one is importance, because if you're familiar with the image of the dress, you know, the black and blue slash golden white dress, right? That was contentious. People were arguing about it, but it wasn't exactly controversial in the sense that like two days later, everybody pretty much forgot about it. There are other things that are super important that aren't controversial at all. The deepest controversy usually happens at the intersection where something is highly contentious and highly important. And that's one of the things we were able to find. Now, as for the startup, the founding story, like many PhD students, I reached the point where it was like quit or die, so to speak. I'm being a little over dramatic here, but I found that a lot of people get to that point in their PhD where they're like, oh, I hate my life. Why am I doing this? And it's almost like part of the hazing in a sense of of going through the PhD. And so for me, when I got to that point, I took a semester off, actually, and during that semester, I thought long and hard, what do I want to do? And one of the things that came up was, just by chance, there was a startup competition at UMass, and I said, well, why don't I apply? You know, I could probably pitch some cool idea about controversy, and I did, and I ended up winning the first prize. It was like, oh, well, I guess I'm doing this now, and so I was really fortunate to have, you know, my advisor, James, be extremely supportive. In fact, he, he ended up being part of the co-founding team and is still involved to this day Uh, but you know many phd advisors wouldn't necessarily be so on board with with the startup but uh for me it was what helped me get through the phd as well in a sense because now i had an incentive to graduate and finding a way to commercialize the tech for me was this like fascinating puzzle to solve and we ended up hitting on fintech as the answer because when there's controversy about any kind of publicly traded entity, then that affects the stock price. And so that's where we landed with it. I'm really fortunate to have an amazing team. And we've also been funded by the National Science Foundation, which has been really exciting and, and wonderful.
0: That's awesome. So so basically now you're CEO, right? And tell me a little bit about the, the team and like, especially like I love when I have leaders on, To talk a little bit about how you think about team building, you know, especially in a startup that's kind of bootstrapped, you know, ish, you got to be really careful about hiring. I'm kind of curious of how you approach that team building question.
2: That's right. I mean, it is definitely a challenge. And I found that the best resource that I found about team building is the Founders Dilemmas. It's a book that Noam Wasserman wrote based on hard data about real startups. And so one of the things he talks about is how important it is to make sure that you're hiring people that are complementing your skills as opposed to sort of having redundancy and having, for example, too many tech people who are all trying to do the same thing. You need to have somebody who understands the business. You need to have somebody who understands the tech. Presumably, at some point, you have to have every business capacity, the marketing, the sales, the tech can't just be like the the high and mighty research. Somebody's got to tend to the servers. And so you have to really find... A way to bring those people on and one thing that one of my co-founders taught me was really very insightful is when you craft your job postings one thing you can do is actually pick a line the very first line that you put on your job requirements it's a form of self-selection right so if you write something like innovative then what happens is people look at that line and say, well, am I innovative? If they say yes, then they'll come to you. If they say no, then they won't even bother applying. And so for us, we ended up with somebody who gets things done because we said, okay, well, we want people to think about themselves like, am I the kind of person who gets things done? And if they say no, we don't want them. Let the people filter themselves out based on your most important criteria. I don't think that putting things like you know, Code Ninja or things like that, those very gendered terms, and they end up attracting certain types of people. So we were very careful to craft it in a very inclusive way, but in a way that would also bring in people that we wanted to work with, and that we knew that would get stuff done. Super important in a startup.
0: Couldn't agree more, and it kind of goes back to that, you know, at the end of the day, A lot of times what you're really after is diversity of thought, right? Like I think Gary Flake in one of my early episodes, who actually also is in Search, by the way, he says, I want people who are similar enough that I know they can get along most of the time, but different enough that they bring perspective that complements and builds out the team i think you hit on that same theme there too which is how i think of it too and also that just figure it out especially in a startup is so important so now you've been running this for a while but i think you're also doing some consulting you know kind of what's the here and now for you and what does this look like for you these days
2: like you said i'm the ceo i'm also the technical co-founder so I definitely get my hands dirty with the technical work as well, but my main role is to raise money so that everybody else at the company can can get their job done. And so we're actually waiting to hear. It's possible that by the time this podcast is out, we'll already have the news on another big round from the National Science Foundation that uh, would bring our total funding raised um, to over a million dollars in non-dilutive equity. And then we're also gearing up to raise uh, a seed round of uh, additional $750,000. You know, that's essentially my main role. Uh, but what I love about it, I'm what's uh, termed a renaissance soul, also another great book in a website that I run of renaissance souls.com. The kind of thing that I thrive on is Marrying different aspects of my expertise. And so, part of what was fun for me for opening the startup was this sort of steep learning curve of learning all the stuff about business that I didn't really know anything about, and then bringing that together with my technical experience. And so, I think it's like the Scott Adams, the Dilbert author, who says that you can't really aspire reasonably to be like the top 1% in any given field. That's sort of such a long shot. But what you can do is be like a top 25% in two or three different fields and then bring them together. And if you can do that, then you, you end up with something very unique that's sort of how he became so successful. For me, finding the intersections between the business aspects and the technical was also what led me to the consulting work. And and that allows me to add a lot of value there. Because a lot of people might be able to do the technical part, but they can't see where the value to the business is. And so it's been really fun for me to come in into a team that I'm only now learning about, but I can ask them questions that Really get to where's the biggest business value for you and then finding the solutions that are going to drive that value for them
0: you know, I love that Renaissance soul idea. I mean, I think uh, this notion of a polyspecifist or this, you know, your uh, Josh Wills quote about a data scientist being, you know, it's a better programmer than most statisticians and a better statistician than most uh, programmers. Like I've built my whole career off of being in the center of the Venn diagram, <laughs> I guess, right? Yeah. And yet, like, I think as you you've probably seen with team building though, too, you also need the folks who are just in one category right so you you want some people who are those broad can go across a bunch and then you need a few who can go really deep too so
2: Especially as your st- a company grows and matures, I think it becomes more important. Um, I think in the early stages, there's huge value to the generalists who can just pick up and go no matter what it, the task is. Uh, but then as you sort of mature, you need people to be more focused. You need them to bring that expertise. And then that's where companies, the bigger they get, the more specialized, really, they get as well.
0: Shiri, what's been the most surprising thing about your career to date? Uh, You've you've given a lot, but I'm just kind of reflect a bit on the journey.
2: In a way, it's still amazing to me that I haven't dropped out of tech. Um, There were so many points along the way where it could have happened and that I seriously considered either leaving the PhD or leaving tech entirely. But I'm really glad that I didn't. That's maybe kind of a weird thing to say. But given sort of the identity that I'm at, I'm, I'm sort of beating the odds by staying in tech in a way. I hate to say it because I think, you know, that shouldn't matter. And yet for me, it really did. Um, There's so many times, like I mentioned, where where getting out of bed was just a huge struggle, and it could have been much, much easier to just not continue that path. Um, and so in a way, the surprise to me is that you know we're here and we're talking about this.
0: You know, the show's called Development or Sherry. spend a moment talking about a mentor, a relationship or a friend or two that really helped you on this career path and kind of the impact they've had.
2: There's been definitely several, and I'm I'm so grateful to all of them. Two of the most impactful ones were my master's advisor and and my PhD advisor, and they were hugely supportive, including throughout like all these health issues that I've had, and that was very big. But also, you know, I was very very fortunate to have that that women mentorship community around me, both mm-hmm. through Grace Hopper and um, grad cohort, which is sort of a, a graduate student focused workshop for underrepresented groups and and women in tech. And there was one instance in particular, I think it was when I went to grad court shortly after I had my first child, uh, my daughter, I was like at my wits end, I was struggling with everything. And I was really not at all sure that I wanted to to stay involved. And several of the the faculty members who were there, uh, the women were, were just incredibly supportive. And one of the things that one of them told me was it's the existence proof. When you need to prove something, sometimes depending on what you're proving in math, right? All you need is one example to prove that something is true. And so she said, look, here I am. I have three kids and I made it. So here you go. Like that's the proof. And and to me, that was actually huge because I think knowing that it's possible is half the battle, right? You don't want to be the one who feels like nobody's ever done this before. I'm the only person and therefore I can't possibly succeed. So that's why I think it is really important to me to talk about, you know, the, the, the health challenges, the parenting, the challenges as, as a woman in tech, because that can help other people to see, Hey, this is possible. Hey, maybe I can do it too. To me, like that was one of the biggest inflection points where I could have easily dropped out of the whole tech world all together, and or the PhD and or, you know, whatever, but I didn't. And part of it was because of, you know, these wonderful women who were willing to say, like, this is really, really hard right now. It's not always going to be this hard. It is possible because look, I've done it. And that's why like on my bio, I always mention that I have two kids because I think it's important for other people to, to see
0: that the existence proof. I love that. And for our listeners here, we all have existence. And the sad thing, Dr. Controversy, right, is that this is a controversial topic, and it just should not be because we should just be past it. (laughs)
2: We should. But then again, you know, there's so many other things that should and shouldn't be controversial. And so, you know, that's okay. I'm, I'm more than happy to stir up controversy on this matter.
0: I really appreciate the time. Two final questions. I think, you know, so now that, you know, maybe you did this already, we talked about some of the surprises, but we have talked about the existence, Wrap it up into perhaps your best career advice. What would you tell someone now?
2: One of the best resources for my career has actually been uh, Ramit Fethi. He's a blogger who's not in tech at all. He's in personal finance and self-development. And I came across his material years ago and it really transformed my ability as a professional to understand, you know, how do you approach the job search? How do you build a career that you actually want to be in? He runs a program called Find Your Dream Job. You know, it's expensive, but if you can afford it, You know, definitely totally worth it. The return on investment is huge. So, you know, I'm kind of plugging him here because it it was one of the most impactful things for me. But what I learned from him was that just doing your work and sort of keeping your head down is not going to get you very far. Maybe sadly, but better to acknowledge the reality that your work is also how you're perceived by others. And so being not just a strong in your whatever field it is whether it's tech or anything else not just strong in your technical abilities or your your sort of domain expertise but in knowing how to communicate that and how to explain what you do to other people how to build a strong network all of these things are hugely important you know some people might scoff and say oh well you know i don't want to be that person well it's like guess what? If you don't want to be that person, you're just not going to be as successful as people who do invest in their relationships, in negotiation skills, and in sort of thinking ahead and developing themselves professionally. And so the talk that I gave at Grace Hopper was about networking and negotiation. I think it's hugely important, especially for women in underrepresented groups, know what you're worth and know how to ask for that. You do that by adding value time and time again.
0: I'm speechless because there's, there's just not a lot to add there because it is fantastic advice. And so, Shiri, I'm just going to finish up then with the final question. And, and we'll be sure, by the way, for our listeners to link up, find your dream job. And it, was it Ramit?
2: Ramit Sethi, yeah.
0: We'll be sure to link that up and and get a link from Shiri on that for our listeners. Really awesome to have you on the show. The existence proof, I, I think, is at the heart of what this show is about. So final question, Shiri. So much great content here from you. Where can our listeners best learn more from you? Maybe follow you on social media, apply for a job because they fit that go figure it out persona.
2: We'd love to have your listeners apply for a job. Happy to have them follow me. I'm on social media, uh, occasionally on Twitter. It's kind of like my name, but not exactly. You know, just my LinkedIn, honestly. Uh, I do have a website. It's just my full name. So shiridory com. And I'm sure we can link it up after. But I'm happy to have anybody who's listening to the show. When you send me a LinkedIn message, just say, I heard you on Develop Mentor. And I'm sure that I'll get a flood of invites. But that is perfectly all right. If you just send me an invite without any message, I will not accept it because I get so much spam. But if you say you heard me here, then I'm happy to help you any way I can. You know, happy to connect. would love to hear from your listeners if I can help in any way. And the other way to keep in touch with me is I have a little mailing list. Uh, it's tinyletter.com slash shiri, S-H-I-R-I. So i um, happy to have people join my mailing list. It would be great to hear from you and um, happy to, to be in touch in any way I can.
0: Awesome, Shiri. That, thank you again. It's so great to have you on the show. Really appreciate you taking the time to join me today.
1: Thanks for having me. Thank you for taking the time to listen to the Development Tour podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. Even better, please leave us a review. If you want to hear older episodes, leave feedback or sign up to be a guest, please visit us at developmentor.com. If you'd like to support the show, there are 3 ways you can help out. 1. Make a donation via Patreon. 2. If you're a software engineer looking for your next gig and wanting to practice interviewing, use our referral link to the interviewing.io platform and 3 buy your next tech book from Manning Publications using our affiliate link. All of those links can be found at developmentor.com/support-us. That's S U P P O R T - U S. All one word. Most importantly, if you like this show, please tell your friends. Referrals are the lifeblood of any podcast. Finally, we here at Developmentor hope that each and every episode helps you move one step closer to finding your path.